People want more democracy, not less. It's time to talk progressive politics and practical solutions with Joy Silver. Outspoken from Radio 111. Now, here's Joy. Hello, hello, hello. And there is so much to talk about today. Uh, And this is a particularly interesting one, I think, that uh, I'm happy to share with those of you who are listening. We are going to talk about truth in the media and when shall that twain meet? Our guest today is Meredith Jordan. She is an author and a journalist. She's written two books about the movie industry, another fabulous and and favorite of mine as far as the subject goes. And her second one is set for release on April 15th. Her next project is called Press or Media, a movement to credential, I say credential, journalists. So Meredith, uh, welcome to Outspoken. Hi, Joy. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, I'm very excited because uh, you talk about two particular things uh, that are high on my interest list and certainly of those of the listeners of this program of Outspoken. And that is, um, let's start with your work in the movie industry because you have a broad brush of media and I believe you kind of fold in film with media as well. So talk a little bit about what you've been doing in that area. Um, well, great. Happy to do that. I um, Basically, I'm a career journalist, and I began covering the, uh, the movie industry and the production industry, I would say, um, starting back in 2012. And uh, my first book was called Below the Law, Anatomy of a Successful Movie, and that was based on being embedded on a movie called Last Vegas. Uh, that starred Robert De Niro, Michael Douglas, Morgan Freeman, and Kevin Klein, and um, I was embedded with it so I could follow production along and go into each department um, and just see kind of what was happening. So how costumes did its job and how the production department was managing the overall picture and props and all of it, and of course a lot about about Mr. De Niro and the others. And uh, to tell the story of production, because below the line, people below the line, that's an accounting term, uh, above the line is just the producers, directors, writers, and actors, but below the line is everyone else. So it was this kind of look at the industry um, in total. And uh, that came out in 2019. And this, the new book that's out on April 15th is called Top Gun Memos, The Making and Legacy of an Iconic Movie. And that's based on Top Gun, um, the 1985 classic that, um, believe it or not, is a very rare movie because of its longevity. Um, and, of course, there's also a sequel coming out that uh, um, is uh, getting a lot of attention. So, well, I want to ask you a little bit about um, the narrative or the stories that are told through a movie like Top Gun. Um, do you have any comments on the actual narrative or the storyline itself? Um, well, it changed dramatically. I mean, Hollywood's a business, and so um, it's actually a fascinating story. I don't know that you could even do it the way they did it then, uh, today. And so they basically, the, the two producers, is sort of uh, Jerry Bruckheimer, before there was a Bruckheimer, there was a Simpson in Bruckheimer, and they just had this idea like um, pilots in, in um, you know, these fancy machines. So it started very loosely from a magazine story 
um, about the fighter pilots at the Navy, and it's completely evolved into kind of what we know today. And there was a lot of criticism that it was pro-military, and Mm -hmm. what I document in the book is how it contributed to the change in um, societal attitudes. Mm -hmm. When it came out, people were still really down on the military because of Vietnam and so forth, and so you have very low... um, opinions of the military and i think top gun really helped to shift that um away from um you know where it had been so but in terms of it being pro-military i don't know about that oh that's an interesting thing though because um that particular time you think it it helped moved people to appreciate the military would you say that i mean it seems like a very pride a very a very uh, male-centric film right i mean so military men stories with men i mean i don't uh, were there any characters in there that that were female that had uh, a part of note yeah kelly mcgillis they were both love interests i mean this is 1986 that this comes out it is very uh, indicative of the culture and time at that at that period it's about the Navy. Women could not fly at that time. Mm-hmm. So absolutely, absolutely. It's, uh, and we kind of get into that in the book, too. But Kelly McGillis was, um, was a, a very respected performance as a character called Charlie. And then also it introduces Meg Ryan. Meg Ryan plays the love interest of, the, of another military character named Goose. Mm-hmm. So, but wow. yes, very male, very yeah, male. Yeah, yeah, and uh, this was <laughs> sort of the beginning before women were actually part of the military in a certain way. Although we had we had uh, we had uh, Greta Kammermeyer who had already been in the military, and we were starting to see some of those stories and documentaries about uh, women in the military, at least uh, in that way. Before you know, we we saw what happened in uh, Desert Storm, et cetera, et cetera. But I think um, it was. From my point of view, it was also an attempt to move women back to a certain role, uh, which would be um, uh, supportive to the male story rather than having it uh, be inclusive of their story. So we were gaining a lot of ground then. I mean, we were looking at uh, uh, Anita Hill's story was coming out in 85, and, and so we were moving forward, and yet this story came out in order to push the more um, male as the hero forward I think in a certain way would you agree with that yeah I mean that makes a lot of sense um I think with this movie too they actually changed her the original the way it was written she was a gonna be I think an exercise like an aerobics instructor and um and somebody came back and said you know why don't we base this on a you know real career person and they got a a woman named Christine Fox so they ended up basing it on this woman who turns out to be a really significant player at the Department of Defense with a, an amazing career. Mm-hmm. So there were little little pockets of insight like that. Um, That's a, so. I really appreciate that. It's interesting that Kelly McGillis uh, was Charlie, for example, which is um, usually Charlie is a male name, and it's interesting that Kelly was carrying that name in the film. I mean, we do see Kelly McGillis moving forward in her career about that time, do we not? Absolutely. In fact, it was so popular that, um, you know, I think she's actually spoken of that, too, about it was just a little bit too much. It was a little more than she'd bargained for, the fame that came with it. Yeah, that's that's an interesting thing, because fame and handling fame, and particularly celebrity, and sort of not having your private life anymore 
is uh, something that people, certainly if they haven't grown up in it, it's a pretty shocking moment for them to transform from being able to go to their local store for, you know, eggs and milk and then finding that uh, you can't do that alone anymore. (laughs) So people spot you all over the place. And so it's a big deal. It's a big deal that way. And it's also a big deal in trying to manage your your finances. I think those are some of the things that happen to people at at their celebrity moment that they're mainly unprepared for. It's true. It's true. Well, people want to see more about the book, too. It's at um, topgunmemos.com. Um, but it's a serious look. I mean, I really do talk about societal contributions because it's not just the, the making of the book, although it's most thoroughly about that. I mean, making of the movie. It's really also about the legacy, like what happens to get this thing where it has fan clubs today. I mean, some of these jets are in museums around the country. Mm. They moved the house when, that was a location that centers a big real estate um, project, a, a hotel. I mean, in Oceanside, I mean, there's really a lot, um, but I had no idea about when I embarked on the project. That's that's an, that's an incredible thing. Well, you have been mostly, I mean, you are an author. You did uh, talk about the nuts and bolts of how a film and these particular films, how they get made and what the relationships are like just to get a film made. I mean, I think that's, a, that's uh, something that people may be unfamiliar with you know they just see the end product uh, but they don't realize how what goes in behind it so it must must be good information for them to learn that but tell me about your life as a journalist a little bit because I want to talk with you about some of these issues about the truth in the media today and and what's actually happening um, now Absolutely. Well, um, Hollywood, is, I kind of think of it, it's a beat, right? And so over the years, I've had a lot of beats. I did spent a lot of time in Washington, D.C., and really started there, uh, in a suburb of there, and worked, you know, over the years. And from weekly newspapers, dailies, I worked for Dow Jones, which is a newswire um, associated with the Wall Street Journal before it was acquired by Rupert um, Murdoch and his interests. And I worked at National Geographic. So I've kind of been all over... Um, the spectrum when it comes to types of uh, at least traditional media mm-hmm. and um, so I'm a student of it and I also I just I believe wholeheartedly in journalism I think the history of our country shows I mean democracies we're a very old democracy as they go and that's that freedom of the press that free speech I think it's pivotal in keeping um, you know in the longevity of the United States I do so I do want to talk I want thing. I want to get back to that freedom of the speech but I w- want to talk about your entrance into the um, the profession of journalism and what was and what that was like now you talked about uh, being on the Washington DC beat or suburb of that and so where did you go to school and what made you want to be a journalist oh I come from a family of journalists so sort of in the in the water at the house, I think. I used to joke, because there was also lawyers, so I used to joke that I picked the side that made less money. Um, but I, I just really, I think it's important, and from a young, like even in high school, I was on the school paper, and uh, when I went to college, I went to college in Florida, and um, you know, got involved in the paper there for a bit, but really, you know, it took a couple of years of wandering around Carnivals. I actually was around a carnival and a circus, and I did a bunch of different things in those years, which really gave me an appreciation for like the every every person's story that everybody has a story to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I settled into D.C., worked at a oh gosh, a chain of um, local papers, 
and um, freelance for the Post, the Wires. I did business. I covered business for uh, at least ten years. Um, you know, like with the Wires, I not just Dow Jones, but another one as well, and magazines. So to me, it's like a, a journalist is really isn't an expert on anything, but they they know how unless it's maybe interviewing people or how to get information. But really, the the goal is to find the experts to tell you you know, what they know. Journalism is a process of verification. Uh-huh. So that's the, that's the secret. Whatever it is, whether you're writing about a, you know, a producer and how they raise the money for a movie or whether you're talking to somebody about, um, you know, how a law got changed or, um, gosh, numerous examples. It's, it's trying to get uh, that verified and, and multiple sources and the best, you know, the best version of the truth available. Well, that's um, that sounds like you um, you sound like an investigator then, uh, uncovering uh, information to create a narrative that uh, becomes confirmable. Well, how did you feel about our last? Um, I mean, here we heard for four years how the press was the enemy of the people. How does that how does that to parallel to freedom of the press and the First Amendment? I mean, what was going on there? I think it's incredibly dangerous. Um, and there's a there's a multiple multiple things have to be in place for that to become as dangerous as it has been. You know, where people are walking around with T-shirts that say, you know, rope tree journalist. You know, literally wearing a T-shirt that says that, and and obviously instant incidents of violence against journalists increased. Um, and I think there's a disconnect. Honestly, I think that doesn't happen except that people don't really understand the difference between press and media anymore. Our podcast today is made possible by the generous support of My Little Flower Shop in Palm Springs. They are the premier full-service floral and event design studio in our beautiful desert cities. The staff has more than 50 years of experience designing, planning, and executing one-of-a-kind, high-profile social, corporate, and charity benefit special events. That experience includes the Academy Awards and presidential inaugurations. So whether you are planning a wedding, a birthday, showers, or anniversary parties, or you're organizing a big banquet, My Little Flower Shop uses only the finest flowers and will help you celebrate in style. Everyday arrangements, wedding bouquets, centerpieces, and amazing unique designs. Call My Little Flower Shop. Open daily, 9 to 5. The phone number is 760-778-7111. That's 760-778-7111. And visit them online for visual inspiration, mylittleflowershop.com at 861 North Palm Canyon in Palm Springs. They're open for delivery and an official sponsor of Outspoken. We are back with Meredith Jordan, the author and journalist, and uh, her next project is called Press or Media, which is a movement to credential journalists. That that's what we're talking about in this moment. Truth in the media, and when shall the twain meet? And we were talking to you, Meredith, about what is the difference between press and media. Well, all members of the press are uh, professional journalists who abide by ethical legal standards to report factual stories. Um, there are guidelines for that, and um, there's a clear rule book. It's been in place for a long time, and it shifts around, but basically the, that's the core of it. But uh, all members of the press are part of the media, 
but not all media are press or journalists. Press is the term that's used in the U.S. Constitution, but if you just think of it as a, say, a journalist versus a member of the media, you have everything from influencers to talking heads to pundits to these cable show people. All of that's media, and it's sort of coming at people and, you know, this torrent all the time. And so people, you know, they will, uh, the society at large, I think this is a, a core issue, they no longer make the distinction between somebody who is literally answering to a set of rules where this larger media doesn't. Um, and that's really an important thing. I, you know, that's a very interesting thing. Can you talk a little bit about what journalism is versus being an influencer? I know I, I read a piece by you and you talk about influencers and, and how do, how, I mean, it seems like anybody can become press in their own mind. And this is what you're saying, it's actually media, but anybody with an opinion has just as for freedom of the press, which is not the same thing, they can just say whatever the heck they want and there's just no corroboration there. And this becomes as real as any media or journalism that you might put out. Now, how, how, do, you, how do we handle this? What do we do about this problem? Well, I think there are a couple of things. One is to sort of just step back for a second. And uh, Pew Research had done a, a study over from from '08 to 2019. There was a 50 more than 50 percent decrease in newspaper jobs. Like those are traditional newspaper legacy. Maybe it's on the internet, but like you would associate them as a newspaper to start. And then a 117 percent increase in digital native newsrooms. And so that's something that originates online. Now, in the mix, you would have an influencer. So this could be somebody that begins a Facebook page, and um, I can think of a couple locally, for instance, that they end up getting many, many people watch this. You know, they they see them on Facebook and they kind of read. Well, they are marketers, really. They, They get clients, and the clients pay them to promote a particular thing. So let's say you have something before city council, and this one person pays this, they're not beholden to any set of rules, they're not doing anything wrong, they just have a popular Facebook page that a lot of people look at. And so they start reporting that this particular, oh, I don't know, let's say a fast food chain, and this is a great thing, and, you know, anybody who wouldn't want this, you know, would be, you know, whatever, they, they don't like, whatever, you know, and, and not that's different than the paper who sends a reporter that covers the hearing and then reports there were 21 people who spoke, mm-hmm. 17 were in favor or opposed or whatever. And so the problem is that people don't want to pay for news anymore, so they don't really know, okay, why is there opposition to that particular thing? Because all they've seen is on Facebook where the guy has touted, or the gal, has touted their client. So that's a dangerous thing because people are not getting accurate information. I mean, that's sort of a, an example, a hypothetical. But it happens every day that people just don't get accurate information and they form opinions um, on these things that they're seeing. And an influencer is a, is a good thing, it's a marketer, but you also have nefarious sources that, that are literally trying to mislead people and to shape opinion in, in a way based on false information. This is a real issue because of the the thin line between um, promoting one's municipality or state interests versus um, uh, versus actual um, control of the media and 
based on that and based on dollars spent towards any particular form of the media. And so this is an incredible thin line between what's politically helpful and how do you engage more people in a process or how do you shape their points of view. And this is what I hear you talking about, shaping people's points of view in a controllable sense based on the dollar. I mean, this is this is a frightening moment in time. Well, and it's obscured, too. So there's it, it, really, it's a rise of unaccountable media. You know, that's the truth. So they put out this voluminous amount of, of, of disinformation, right? And sometimes it's benign, and sometimes it isn't. And this, I mean, it's in every area. It's public health, it's elections, but also just on a local basis. You know, like police departments, the coverage used to be that your local paper covered your police department. So if something was going awry, you would see it in local coverage. And that's gone. Mm. I mean, that disappeared with those jobs, you know, with a 50 percent decrease in, um, in local coverage. You know, that's it's hard to follow police all the time if you don't have a police reporter or if you have one reporter that's covering five, you know, the entire desert or however that might however it might be. Well, I understand, uh, particularly, for example, uh, we have the Riverside County Sheriff's Department who hired a strategic PR crisis management organization in order to put a spin on any items and to be out front first with their narrative and their storyline. This is not press, as you've described. No, and that's, they've always had PR, public information officers, and things like that. But if you, if you reduce the number of people who are covering and paying close attention, um, then, yeah, it becomes, I mean, any government can do it, can just, like, you know, get a, and that, we see that over and over and over again. I mean, it's, the push should be back local that, uh, for our communities. But also there's less, there's less infighting because people have shared interests in what happens in their local community where, you know, these big global issues separate us more readily. There are, there's common ground that's better for a community, but that's well, I, one of those things that's lost. And that's an interesting thing because um, in the earlier days of, of press um, or even even uh, news on um, our televisions when we were younger, people would have shared information. They may have a different opinion about how that information should be used or what it will mean, or whose interests are served, or but it was the same set of information, and people got it from the same set of sources um, were available to people on a, on a on a reporting basis. And at this point in time, people are not even, I mean, they don't even get the information from the same place, and for sure, it's not the same. It's not the same information. How do you? Um, how do you feel or how do you define a freedom of the press? I mean, how does that, what is that? Well, I mean, I, I think, I think we have free speech in this country. And so that's mostly a good thing. We are coming to grips with, um, with responsible use of it. You know, the old, uh, the often quoted, you can't scream fire in a movie theater. So there are real limits to, that we're figuring out as a society right now um, that have to kind of weigh that in. But I think a big part of it's educational. So people um, have been told through many, like political channels, as you mentioned earlier, that they can't trust the press, that, that that's we're the enemy of the people. And yet, um, as imperfect as it is, and obviously there's bias in every human being, 
it's still the best thing out there. You know, if you're going to choose, well, I'm just going to get my source from, I'm going to get my information from somebody that isn't even going to try to follow rules. It's going to just state opinion that I it can be uh, easily, um, you know, proved wrong. It doesn't matter anymore. That's much more dangerous. Mm-hmm. So what I tell folks is wherever you get your information, go to the Google or one of the search engines and type in that and then put in quotes, code of conduct, code of ethics. And, and just see what comes up. Some of these places they don't they don't have codes of ethics. They don't they don't have any problem telling you they don't. Fox <laughs> News doesn't have them. At least last I looked, you know they're doing news and entertainment. And so you know you want to, people often will say, oh, the liberal New York Times. But the reality um, from people inside is that it's actually very hard to get a story in that, say, depicts poverty because people think it's going to skew liberally, you know, to the liberal side. So it's, it's not as liberal as people think. But I'll tell you what, they do have a code of ethics. You, you do lose your job if you don't follow these basic rules. And you know what? We don't see that. We don't see people losing their jobs at some of these other places because they're not doing journalism and they're not even claiming to do it. Mm-hmm. So basically it becomes propaganda disinformation machine. I mean, when you talked about, um, and that was always the thing, you can't scream fire in a theater, but we're seeing fire has been screamed on the uh, by anti-vaxxers, for example. This is screaming exactly. fire in the theater of the larger culture. And yet, there's no way to pull that back without having a more than a political fight over um, uh, suppression of speech and being against the First Amendment. So I think... Um, we're in deep trouble with this. What do you, uh, first of all, I wanted to talk to you about the fairness doctrine and, and include this kind of in your answer here, but what do you propose? How do we get by what has particularly divided us so terribly in this moment in time in this country? Well, I mean, I think there are a lot of pieces to it because the problem is is multifaceted. Yeah, it goes back historically, fairness doctrine, there are other things that contribute to it, but you know, lots of things have changed, not just the laws and regulations, technology, the way technology affects our brains, market conditions, all of that. I mean, I really feel like uh, journalists, I think we should be credentialed. I think we've reached a point where we should come up with a registry, and um, there's, we proposed a way to do that at pressormedia.com. Um, uh, actually, the full statement is not up on the website, but what, you know, what we're doing is pretty clear. And the idea is that it's a rebranding, if you will. It's explaining what we do because people no longer understand that there is this one element that is trying to abide by the same, the same thing at the core of the fairness doctrine. The fairness doctrine was just that you would balance information. You would try to tell both sides of the story, not evading the truth, but just, I mean, there's a very famous case when cigarette ads started to run on the national airwaves. This was all broadcast. It wasn't about print, but with broadcast, they started to run these cigarette ads. So they, there was a case that required that they also run um, uh, health messages about the dangers of smoking, which we now know, you know, to be extreme. So that um, that requirement, when that was eliminated by the FCC, that created an, um, the place. That's how Fox News um, opens up mm-hmm. its news division. Um, a lot of things changed there. But then you also have, you know, the Internet is what creates many places. So you can kind of pick and choose. And we see the way human bias wants to only learn information that reinforces what we already believe. Mm -hmm. I think 
a big solution is for journalists to to step up and say, look, I'll make a commitment to this code of ethics that I already follow, that you don't know that we follow, because the public doesn't understand it. There really are rules, and you lose your job if you don't follow them. Like, mm-hmm. it's a real thing. You, you have to hear, you know, you have a story. I, there was something in my book that's coming out that was pretty controversial. I couldn't reach one of the um, the people, a very well-known person, hard to get to. And I kept trying until I finally got to him because I wanted that input. I didn't have to do that because I had people on the record that were sourcing. But you know what? In the course of doing that, I found out something wasn't true. Despite all the sourcing, despite people on the record believing something was true, it wasn't true. <laughs> and it was because I took that effort to... You know, to get to, and I think, and that's not unusual. Like, my point is just that there are far more people doing professional journalism than most folks understand. And so we need to explain better what we do. Well, um, this is a, a big undertaking. Do you have a group of journalists that uh, are moving to uh, this credentialing of journalists? It is a loose group. We do have a, um, a, an essay that we've put out and um, have circulated it, and that actually gets picked up, I think, next month. And I'll have more to report on that later. Well, that'll be great. And we can find information about Press or Media at again? Pressormedia.com. Um, very limited, but there will be a place to, um, to get on a list. Um, that's going to go up this week. So, yeah, put your name on it. We'll get more information out. I appreciate that. We're talking to Meredith Jordan. She's going, she's, uh, her next project is called Presser Media, a movement to credential journalists. And this was Truth in Media. When shall the twain meet? Thank you so much, Meredith, for your participation today. And I know we'll be back talking to you again soon. Thank you. 